0: We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, Coming Up for Air.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Laurie McDougall back on Coming Up for Air. And today um, I have my two co-hosts, Dominique Simon-Levine, the creator of the Allies to Recovery website, as well as Kayla Solomon. Uh, we seem to be um, quite a trio I really enjoy our conversations together. Um, And today's topic, what we're going to talk about is something that we hear over and over um, at the Allies in Recovery website and when we're working with uh, families. And that is, what do you do when you have a loved one that is not living with you? Um, You either have very infrequent communication with that loved one sometimes not at all sometimes there you know there is no communication at all um and i have found this is this is really complicated and it's really important um to try and understand like all the dynamics that are going on in that picture um because that kind of gives you just a minimal piece of what's going on Um, and so um, if, if we could just comment on that, right, just uh, talk about what can a family do? What can a, you know, a mom, a dad, a spouse, what can you do if your loved one isn't living at home with you and they're kind of disappearing for periods of time? Um, and I, I often say that it's, um, it's limited in what you can do, but there are ways uh, to reach out to that person to kind of Dominique. You describe it as kind of drawing that scared animal back, so that there is communication. It's kind of like pulling them back in, um, so that there is communication between your loved one um, and you. So, so Dominique, I, Katty, uh, yeah, Jared, right. go ahead. and I think there are. There, there are
2: two goals. There are two different goals. One is to reconnect at whatever level is possible, given the physical circumstances of separation, phones, reception, all all, all of the technology. Um, you know, craft was not designed to work for families who had less than. Forty uh, percent contact, daily contact with their with their loved one with addiction. It really was designed to help in the day to day interactions. So if you didn't have day to day interactions, you wouldn't be able to do craft. But over the years, we have found all kinds of ways to uh, maintain some contact some communication and 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 grow it hopefully to the point where you have more connection and you have more opportunity to 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 let your loved one know that you're willing to help um, help get that help um, help have them take a look at that help um, and hopefully guide them into that help right so so Part of it is is rekindling, reconnecting on a softer, neutral basis, that bridge of connection between the two of you. And then the bigger goal in a lot of cases is, can you shine the light on treatment? Can you shine the light on on recovery activities? Um, And and, and can you guide your loved one into them um, through very little contact? So... That's and that's always been the top goal of, of craft, right? Is to get your loved one in, into treatment. So, can you do it with less contact? Absolutely. Um, and it starts with building back that bridge, as you're saying. But, I, I what um, I would add to that, and it's just so exactly, different I'm goals. Sorry. Perhaps the first one is to just neutrally make, yep. Go ahead.
3: I think the the way I see it is non-threatening communication because what happens is a lot of times when people are anxious, the, it seems like we're trying to be helpful, but we convey the anxiety. And that is the least helpful way that you can communicate is with your anxiety, with pressure, with that kind of panicky, are you okay? What's going on? Talk to me. That is not helpful at all because I, I feel like The part that doesn't make sense to those of us who are loved ones or caregivers or whatever, we don't see ourselves as threatening, we see ourselves as helpful, and the other person does not see us that way. And so the first step of it is to take yourself out of that threatening position and put yourself into a connecting position, which is very neutral, very mild contact so a lot of times what I'll do is tell people send cat photos or you know just say I love you or I'm thinking of you like these very neutral non-threatening no asking questions because I feel like what happens with the dynamic is these questions and once you get into questions you get into defensiveness So you create defensiveness on the other person. So it's not about asking questions unless you could say, hey, how are you doing? But it's neutral, not how are you? Are you okay? That's not a good question.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad you bring this up, uh, Kayla, because um, I see a lot of this. um, There's, you you talked about this when we talked about reflective listening and dropping your agenda. Um, I think a lot of the time, uh, what I what I see a lot of the time, our families feel as if this is the only communication I'm going to have for a very long time, and so I have to jam pack it in, and I have to focus on getting them into treatment, right? I have that's and I am trying to um, trying to help families to calm that down and to understand that may be the long term goal. <laughs> Right. But right now, it's just to build communication and to drop that agenda. And I always talk about having light communication, right? It just kind of what you're saying, Kayla, that it's not. I often say I know you think you're saying something nice like I always felt when I was asking my son how are you I might have intended it as how are you today how are you feeling today how are you feeling this morning but it and it may have had nothing to do with substance use disorder or his problems but I think that we as a family were always talking to him about those problems so when I asked that question it was so loaded that he was like I'm fine leave me alone you know leave me alone and I had to learn to go you know uh, kind of back away and just have like literally basic conversations with him you want a cup of coffee? how's it you know um i'm headed down to the store do you want to come down with me today or isn't it a beautiful day or you know just kind of keeping it light and um and i also say that all the time kayla send if if they're not communicating with you they're put my thing is they're pushing away they're then they're pushing away and the way to pull them in is to just send these basic messages of hey haven't heard from you in a while. You know, just just uh, wanted to let you know. I um I was thinking of you, and and that's it. Nothing else. Nothing. You see, and I,
3: I think it's really important that you use emojis. Because emojis are the least threatening form of communication. Like they have these, the, the bitmojis now where it's you and you're like, have a good day. So it's like, it takes the threat level down even one more. And just from a therapeutic level, like people think when somebody walks in my office, the first thing I'm going to do is start dealing with their substance use issues. And that is not what I do at all. So just so you know, it's like it's the same process. You have to develop a relationship. And if your relationship is fraught to begin with, the last thing you want to do is continue on the path that you've always been on. So it's basically see yourself as as like starting afresh and that you don't know this person and that you're doing all like vague non-threatening communication. So for me, when somebody walks into my office, I'm asking them, what are you interested in? And what what feels good to you? And what's hard? And, you know, I don't say, oh, how much are you drinking and stuff like that? that it, because that's, I know they're going to lie anyway. So that's kind of a waste. Um, but, but what I want to do is find out who they are. And there's a lot of joking around and finding, you know, things that we have in common and going in that direction because I, literally i think this analogy of the scared little being is what it is it's like I, if somebody's scared i'm not going to run and approach them and run towards them what you do is you slow down and you and every single move that you make is slow and intentional so you're not just doing your like spewing of anxiety. You're basically sending out little nuggets of like bringing the person towards you. It's like little food nuggets to bring an animal towards you. You don't just go put your hand out because you're going to be bitten. Um, And and what I feel like is that the desperation is exactly the worst thing you could possibly be communicating. Right. And I also have this vision of pursuer and avoider. Because I also, if people are interested in relationships, it's the same dynamic. So in every relationship, there's the person who pursues. It's the chaser. It's the somebody who goes after the other. And the avoider is the person who's running away from the other person. So I wish you could see me right now, but my hands are like one, <laughs> one hand is chasing the other and the other is running away. And what happens is that the, the, a very effective way to get an avoider back is to start backing up and to turn away. So it's very unnatural if you're panicked about something but you what you're doing is you're moving your energy in the opposite direction so they can come towards you. Right. And 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 because they're afraid or they're feeling like I always describe the pursuer as or the the perception of the pursuer is there's this very large overwhelming monster that's trying to eat you. And that and those of us who care about people, we think that we're being so loving and kind, but we are perceived as these consuming beings that if they get too close to us, we are going to eat them alive. So, of course, they're going to run, right. which is the which is exactly what happens in the in the field. So, right. Well, we if you pull back and pull your energy back and look away they are able to come towards you. And when they come towards you, because often they'll like have a quick communication and you're like, hey, and you just say hi then they're, you're still being avoidant and they will come towards you and towards you. And you want to keep letting your energy get pulled back. So they're initiating the contact. They're giving you something.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. And that's, and that's um, uh, oftentimes I, I kind of talk about it a little bit different, but I love that analogy. Um, but I, I do say like, um, I feel like there is this level of trust that the person can't, can't trust in the conversation with um with this person because every time they enter into the conversation it all comes back on them it all yeah. comes back on you're not doing something there's some expectation so i can't trust to have a conversation with you because it's going to come right back to me and my problems and i don't want to discuss them right now um and i often say this is this is the the goal right the goal is not in this moment to get them into treatment. It's not. The goal is to build a relationship where they can trust you and they can talk to you about things and trust that you're not going to jump on them and try and get them right. And you're also going to have, have some level of respect that they have ideas for themselves.
3: Right. And right? so, Lori, to jump on that, which is a really important point, is I think it's very helpful if we look at ourselves as not trustworthy and not that other person who's not trustworthy. Because they're the problem, obviously. Look, they use drugs and they steal and they lie, but we have the opposing version of lack of trust because we're not trusting them. We're invading their space. We're consumed, we're consumed with them, so our boundaries are terrible because what happens is their life affects us so deeply that, of course, they're not going to talk to us because they feel like they're they're cutting us to pieces every time they're honest with us. And so that's a trust issue. It's like if we don't have good boundaries, we're not trustworthy.
1: I, I love and I think we need to have a whole other podcast on boundaries because Um, Because I say, I say this all the time. Here I was setting down boundaries and getting upset when my son wouldn't follow my boundaries, which nine out of 10 times they probably weren't boundaries, they were probably more rules, but But I wanted him to follow my boundaries. And then I was livid when he wasn't. And I thought, you know, how can he be so disrespectful and I'm his mother and And, and then I started kind of looking at it differently. And I started to realize, well, you know what? He asks me for boundaries and I don't follow them. He says, I don't want to talk about this. This is my life. Step out of it and I keep pushing myself into it I Bingo. keep getting right I keep getting in there and going you know but you've got to do this and, and how can you and you got to stop with it and and it wasn't until that day that I um that I was like wait a minute if he tells me to back up I better back up yes and and I started doing that no matter how much I, and I realized also in, in that, and it was a process of learning about myself, but in that backing up and stepping back and being able to kind of notice everything that was going on inside of me, it was okay. If I'm basically pushing myself into his boundaries and over that boundary line, I'm telling him he's incompetent. I'm telling him you need me. You need me to figure this out for you, and um, because you're totally incapable. And and I can honest, I will. I mean, I'm totally honest about uh, myself and my experience. And um, uh, there were multiple times when I thought he can't do it. He can't. He can't. He's incapable of doing it. And by doing all of that, um, and that the fear that he couldn't do it is what kept me overstepping my boundaries right, that I I shouldn't be getting into his life as much as I was. I'm also crippling him. I'm crippling him. And um, I'm not giving him the chance to learn. And um, also, um, if he makes a mistake, I have to be and I'm sorry, I'm trying to change the word mistake. If he doesn't (laughs)
3: <laughs> if he doesn't do it your way if he, did,
1: yeah, if he didn't do it my way right? or even if he did it his way and it didn't work out right, the way he thought it was going to work out or the best or whatever it was that that was okay that that, that that was just an opportunity for him to learn about himself and I was getting in the way of all of that um, and so So once I realized, oh, my God, you know, I'm stepping over his boundaries all the time. How can I possibly expect him to follow my boundaries? And then, of course, the other realization came into effect of, wait a minute, if he's if he's going beyond my boundary, whose job is it like that's actually not his responsibility to enforce the boundary. It's really my responsibility.
3: Right, and you said it, which is what's the difference between boundaries and rules? Right. The boundary is yourself, that there's an edge of what you're willing to accept and not willing to accept for you, not what he does. It's like, right. and, and there's, a, there's an overlap. So it's like, if somebody is living with you and they break one of the rules and it has a direct effect on you, you need to decide what you're going to do about that. Right. You know, because it's like if you're going to steal from me, then that totally affects me. And so do I want to live with you? I don't know. Do I want to lock my stuff up? Maybe that's the answer. And I could live with that. Or maybe you can't live here if you're going to keep doing that. But that's right. a boundary that I have that I have to decide what to do with. And, but th- and that's a very different story than... Um, you know, if you don't come home at twelve o'clock, blah 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 blah. It's like right. if you stay up waiting for him, that's not his problem; that's your problem.
1: Exactly. Right. No, I, I totally get that. I um and and a part of the problem I think with boundaries and, uh, and and rules is people people don't understand the difference between the two of them. And rules have consequences, but they're consequences that you've made, that it's it's a punishment. Right. Whereas boundaries, I'm not going to lock up my money as a punishment to my loved one. I'm going to lock up my money to protect my money because I need my money. Right. You know, whatever, whatever that is. And um, learning that 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 locking up my money is actually not a punishment. He may, he may be upset, right? I, you know, you're, um, I hear this all the time, like uh, a loved one will feel horrible that now you're locking up, I know you're locking up your money every time I'm in the room or this or that. And it's like, well. You don't steal my money. It's not a punishment. <laughs> yeah, it's not a punishment. It's like, yeah, I got to protect my money. And it, and I'm not holding it against you. It's just what I got to do, right? It's it's just See, but how that it goes, is right now.
3: That goes back to the communication. Like if somebody would say to me, oh my God, how could you do this to me? You're locking up my money. I would be dying laughing. Yeah. But... It's like, don't take my money. It's like, and and there's a line that I use that really I love witches is based on your decision, I will be making decisions. So it's not so it's like if you if you keep, you know, stealing my money, I'm locking up my money and then do not come to me and tell me, oh, why are you locking up my money? You don't trust me. My first answer is, of course, I don't trust you. You take my money. Why do I look like an idiot? It's like, why would I leave my money out? If I want to give you money, I'm going to take the money out and hand it to you. But if you decide that you're going to take my money, we have an issue here because right. you need to ask me. That is not right. your money. But right. but I think what happens is that people are so giving and I need to give you money because something bad's gonna happen if I don't give you money, that it becomes that's an issue that That is already established. It's like, if I need something, it's my right to take it from you. Yes. Because that's the rules that have been set forth at this point.
1: And I can also tell you, Kayla, I do believe that there is actually a lot more um, involved than just that there. um, And I, I can tell you that. um, And my husband and I both experienced this with our son because he struggled with mental illness his whole life. Right. So, um, there, there, um, and I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate to this, there really is a deep-seated root belief that they cannot do particular things, basic things, and that um, it could end up damaging them if we withhold or If we don't support in a particular way. So it is very, um, it's really difficult to to describe, but there were times there were things that I, and actually it's more my husband than me, um, I started to Um, As he became a teenager, I started to set down some boundaries and some and actually we we should talk about expectations and some expectations of him and really held myself to it. And I started to see that he could actually accomplish some pretty basic things. Um, He could really like I'm just trying to think of things like, uh, you know, flipping out and throwing a temper tantrum you know, as a a teenage temper tantrum, and I would hold my ground. No, I'm not. I'm when we can calm down, we can come down and have a conversation, both of us. Right. Um, And eventually, I did it like three or four times. And he did, he got in control of himself. And but my husband then became the problem because he thought it was so emotional that it was hurting him. For us to have this expectation of him, and that we might damage him in some permanent way, and it took a long time to kind of um, almost convince my husband, which which, and I know you're going to laugh, but this all goes back to when he was when he was yeah. a kid, right? Because that's what they did in their family, right? So it was um, it it's this really deep belief. And having to have to overcome, kind of like the first thought, second thought thing again, right? Or the event, thought, feeling, reaction, you almost have to start convincing yourself that they can, they might be able to accomplish more than you think that they can.
3: If you don't, imagine not having that thought, what? how disrespectful that is to your loved one. Like, right. you, you can't do this. So totally agree. It's like if you set that up as the expectation, you are building low self-esteem. It's like you are the creator of low self-esteem. I and you know, and I've been in various environments. I believe in higher expectations for everybody, whether you're dealing with a mental health issue or a substance use disorder. If you have low expectations, all of us do this, like you come up as high as the expectation and then you don't go any higher. So if I start out expecting nothing of you, I know, I know, that's how high you're going to go.
1: I know. I totally agree with you. I don't disagree with you at all. But also there has to be a major understanding of how that um, impacts me as a family member and as a mom and as a dad.
3: But it's all about awareness.
1: But wait, wait, wait a minute. It evolved that way, right? I went for years trying to get help with him and his, um, his mental illness, and could not, one, I couldn't get a diagnosis, I couldn't get the support. I saw so many counselors, I tried everything, everything. So it evolved without much support. I read every book I could possibly come up with. Mm-hmm. So that kind of deep-seated, rooted, you know, embedded in me, I had done so much. And so um, just historically an interaction that became a part of me and it was really difficult for me to get um, to get beyond that I agree with you and I came to that conclusion you know on my own and and just continually searching with what was going to work with with um, one I did start to discover things in his teens that this is what I had to do but it didn't also had to be phased out of me over time and I didn't come to great understanding of it until I started implementing craft Um, but I agree with you Uh, and that's basically what I'm saying is when I was setting down boundaries here I was you know overstepping his boundaries and and crippling him and not understanding that I was crippling him Um, but it had and it really had a lot to do with this deep Something that had happened over, we're talking like 20 years of my life of mothering, having two daughters um, and this normal, uh, I don't want to say normal, but traditional way of raising children. This is what you did. There were, you know, if they did something, you, you know, you had time out or you had um consequences and you know you got grounded you did and he was not ever responding the way the other two were right he it it was just mushrooming and mushrooming and mushrooming and exploding on the other end of it um so i think i think for families there has to be some some understanding it's almost like we have to craft families the same way we have to craft a loved one because families are coming to the table with some major um, baggage. I call it my baggage, my garbage that I brought to the table. But I had to get through that stuff in order to understand better how to interact with my son.
3: But maybe that's the, the goal here is that instead of immediately trying to fix and solve this problem with your loved one that you start with yourself and the other loved ones that you're living with or dealing with. So because that's that's what all processes involved. It's like you start out with what's the problem and you see yourself as the problem, which I think is the power position, by the way. If I'm the problem, then I'm the solution. So instead of feeling like, oh, I'm guilty and I'm responsible and I did this to them and I'm terrible about what I do. That is not how I see it. It's more like, oh, my goodness, I'm doing something that's not working. I could do something that works. And so you start with that. But then it's this unraveling. So it's exactly what you're saying, Laurie. It's like what's the story from my childhood about how I was raised? What do I believe? What are my wounds? you look at those things because that's going to affect how you're reacting to this. It's all like taking the unconscious and making it conscious. The second part of that is what, what has happened with this dynamic, with this person in terms of how I'm being triggered and what my role is and my boundary issues and how am I communicating? So you look at all these things without judgment, by the way. The idea here is not this is an opportunity to beat yourself up about this. It's an opportunity for you to Go from being in the shadows and the darkness and shedding light on it and being fascinated and curious about what you're finding. And then once you get a handle on that, you start to look at the same thing with your loved one. It's like, what are they dealing with? What kind of mental health issues are they dealing with? What do they respond well with? Um, what has worked in the past? What are they, what is their power? So again, you're looking at how are they surviving in the situation? Because That's their power.
1: I totally, I totally agree. I totally agree. But I also think that, um, I think that a lot of people have to bear in mind what the family is coming in with. And, and, and typically when a family um, uh, shows up, for anything, any kind of support with this type of issue, they're really far into it, right? They're really, really far into it. And they have been bludgeoned by the community and by everybody for their role in their loved one's substance use disorder. And there's also this incredible sense um, of urgency and panic and worry and anxiety that it's really hard to help um, it's, it's Again, it's the same issue with the loved one. It's, a, it's an opportunity. One, they're there, so they do want to make change. But the second piece of it is, it's almost like coaxing a scared animal because they've been um, so beaten down, so exhausted, so blamed and shamed. Um, and you know, they either want to do one thing or the other. I know I'm an enabler. I can't stop it. Or the other piece of not me, not me. I, you know, um, I'm, I don't have a problem. Right. Um, still very much. I don't have a problem. And so I do feel like, um, It's it's still a journey. It's a journey for the family. And actually, the family gets an opportunity to learn about themselves. And that almost has to happen first.
3: (laughs) That's what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it it does. And actually, I think it happens. It can happen simultaneously.
3: Absolutely. But but you you cannot help if you don't have awareness of what's going on with you. You cannot help. It doesn't matter what wonderful techniques you use if you're coming from reactivity or unconsciousness. I agree. Then I, you I, can't help. That's right. all I'm saying. And so or, or, see yourself as the the factor that you have control over. That's right. all I'm I, saying.
1: I, no, I totally I totally agree. But I also think that um, I did learn while I was learning craft and using it on my son. Right, while I was using it on myself, but implementing it in the house, I did learn about myself through that process. I made mistakes and I learned, and um, and went back and tried it again. Um, this was a great conversation. We're kind of running out of time, ladies. So um, we need to continue this conversation. I mean, this is really deep, and I always have such a wonderful time with both of you. Thank you, Kayla. Let's let's do this again next week. Thank you, Dominique. Um, Thank you
2: both. We'll have a great week. Big- Amazing conversation, yeah. you two. Thank you so much. I just want to say, I just want to repeat what Kayla said to us last week because I used it this week. It's the dignity of his process. We have to respect the dignity of their process, the dignity of our process and the dignity of their process. And that's how you are able to step away even just a little bit and let them start to tumble, start to uh, reform themselves a little bit in in reaction to what's going on around them. So thank you both. What an incredible conversation. (laughs) We'll talk
3: next week. Thank you. Bye, ladies. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesandrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, our production team, and Michael Mauboussin for the original music composition.